Green, Josh Forrest, one to six. Um, and then kind of just going back a second and giving a little bit of an overview of where we've been and uh, where, we're, where we're headed. Yes. <clears throat> Romans 9, one through six. <clears throat> I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed be forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Um, you want me to keep going? Um, maybe one more. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Yes, and you almost don't want to stop there because it just keeps getting better and better. But to go back to where we came from... Um, Schreiner had laid this out really nicely. I, I, I thought chapters 1 to 3, you remember going way back, um, where both the Jews and the Gentiles are, were convinced are, um, of the depravity of, of each of them, right? All the way back to the depravity of man. That's chapters 1 through 3. Really, the chapter 1 for the Gentiles, chapter 2 for the Jews. Chapter 3, he convinces us of everybody and then um you remember in 321 the whole tide changes right but now and there is great news in the gospel as clearly as could be put in uh in in six verses from verse 31 uh to 36 in chapter 3 and really 321 to 425 is about the righteousness of god um to all people that have faith in christ Right, and that's really the theme of the all of Romans, you might say, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ that He imputes uh, into our account. And then five one to eight thirty nine, and this is where we just came from, and it was certainly a meaty section and one that we've spent months on about how the blessings that belong to Israel in the Old Testament now have been ascribed to the church. And, uh, and it's kind of bookended by two, I, I find these really similar, we haven't spent enough time on this probably, similar sounding passages. Grant, would you read 5, 1 to 11? That was the start of this. And then, Josh, if you read 8, 31 to 39 that we've been camping on really last month, um, they're, they're similar but so rich. 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Good, thanks. Josh? 831, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, thanks. You have to smile. For I am sure. And uh, and then we get to chapter 9, and uh, and I, I think I chuckled out loud when I read this. Um, I think it was in um, Stott. Uh, he was quoting somebody, Romans 9 to 11, really now, is as full as problems as a hedgehog is as prickles. That was Dr. Tom Wright. Many have given, uh, uh, given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning that we've really enjoyed, and then four of application at the end, 12 to 15 is really going to be great for the application. And I've been guilty of this. When I read this, I thought, that's been me. I haven't given nearly enough thought and appreciation to 9 to 11, which we're, you know, right now starting. And, and then he says, in the three uh, uh, of puzzle in the middle, 9 to 11. So um, one of the commentators said, you know, thinking of 9 to 11 as a group, Israel's fall in 9, you know, God's purpose in election, we're going to see that, it's glorious. Chapter 10, Israel's fault, God's dismay over her disobedience, and then in chapter 11, Israel's future. You know, what? what's going to happen to Israel? And then, just an incredible doxology, and today I hope you feel uh, the sense of this. Next week, I think you will even more, but flip to the doxology at the end, because uh, as Grant was praying um, earlier, I thought about this because this passage, these passages bring such a humility because you say, I, like, it's hard to know how much of a grasp we're really even getting. But I think that Paul, when he writes this at the end of uh, 1133, look what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So I'm pretty sure that that's where we're going to end up at the end of this 9 
10 and 11 with just a, a doxology of praise, even as Paul did. So 9 to 11, primarily about the faithfulness and righteousness of God. Okay, and it's not a, uh, a part on its own. It is a continuation. Josh can explain this to us. It's a continuation of what we've been studying. And that's where I think I haven't always seen it like that. Israel says the place of Israel is crucial, and that's what we're going to see in this. But that's not even the main focus. The main focus really hinges on this one verse. And if you get a chance, listen to Mark in the upper room. Jesse, I think, posted that. Um, and, and Mark has a great little treatise on this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, that's the question. Coming from Romans 8, you say, here are all of these promises. But Israel, with all, and Grant's going to go through them for us, all the privileges that they have, they, they, these promises, they have rejected all these promises. So it, could it be that God has not been faithful to his promise? That's the question that Paul is now answering or asking and answering um, due to Israel's disobedience and straying away from what uh, you know, from from God as His chosen people. So, chapter nine, one to five, it's about Israel being alienated from Christ, and uh, and that's going to be our focus. Josh, can you help us understand just the importance of of nine to eleven because? Um, sure. way more than I realized. Yeah, I think way more than I realized too as I began to look into it. Uh, you hit on some of the really important parts, but when you get to Romans 9 after coming off of chapters 1 through 8, the tone differs dramatically. You have 8, 31 to 39 end on this note of exuberant celebration. And then right out of the gate here in 9, Paul's sorrow and lamentation uh, take center stage. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. So you, the, the tone differs a little bit, but this is not a, a detour or an, an alternate part of the letter. There is a unifying theme that is underlying the letter all the way through. Um, some, just because of the content, seems to differ, thought that this was maybe a sermon that Paul preached and to the Roman church, and it was just kind of inserted in here. Because you finish chapter 8 and it seems like a natural transition to go right into 12. But I don't think that that is the case. I don't think this is a detour. I think that 9 through 11 play a central role in our understanding of the letter. And uh, verse 6, I believe, is the, the thesis of this whole section. And I think when we understand that this is really a vindication of God, we will... Um, rightly come to at least some measure the same doxology that Paul ended on in 1133-36. Uh, for a long time, I think I looked at this passage, and Romans 9 was just the predestination chapter, and, and it certainly is. There's uh, a, a great emphasis on the doctrine of election here. Or I looked at 9-11 through 11 as what is the role of Israel in the church? You know, how does all that play out? But And certainly that is there. It's a major part of the content here, but I think fundamentally this section is about a vindication of God that his word has not failed, that his promises are sure, 
they're certain, and they're true and reliable. Um, all of the ones in eight are reliable. His word has not failed. And I know we'll, we're going to get more into this today, but um, the when you think about God's people, the Israelites, um, you wonder, a lot of them did not come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And so have his promises failed? Is God to be trusted since his chosen people have not come to put their trust in the Savior? And I think all of the issues are, are kind of among the backdrop of have God's promises failed or are they trustworthy? And, and Paul's going to mount this defense starting in 6 onward, really 9, 6b and onward to paint a picture that God's promises are true, they're reliable, and they're trustworthy. Uh, one commentator put it like this. I thought this just summarized the whole section really well. The tension introduced in Romans 9 through 11 addresses how do we account for Israel's unbelief despite their privileged status? Has the word of God failed? Uh, if so, how can we bank on all the promises of Romans 8 if Israel is cut off from Christ? And so the thesis in verse 6 uh, began, Paul's launching into this, that God's um, Promises are true. This is this is a passage not fundamentally about election or Israel, but about God. Uh, it's a vindication of His righteousness, faithfulness, and integrity. So I think as I began to see this, the passage began to open up for me and began to see what what's really going on here about um, God and how His promises are true. What it really means to be part of true Israel, and uh, we'll get more into it. <clears throat> yeah. And Grant, anything on that? Yeah, yeah, I, I do think that's so important because we just finished out all these wonderful promises in chapter 8. And so the question is, can we trust those? Can we bank on those throughout the rest of our history? And I think, you know, with, with how this is oriented in the letter, like if, is it just inserted and stuff, when we were in chapter 3, we, we kind of hit on it a little bit in the beginning of chapter 3 where Paul sort of brings up, excuse me, these subjects uh, where he says, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Uh, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true, though every one were a liar. And then he goes on from there, and then really from there, he doesn't give a full answer at that time. He sort of brings it up, sort of brings up some of the problems, and even in that section, sort of the, the uh, what do we do if if oh, we are elected, Can should we just go on in sin so that grace may abound? He brings that up, but he really goes on from there and shows that both Jew and, and Gentile are under sin, and then he just starts building the gospel throughout the rest of 5 through 8, and then we just we climb that mountain of the gospel with our imputation of righteousness of Christ, um, our union with him, uh, uh, being in him versus being in Adam, and then being free from sin in 6, and then our struggle with sin in 7, and then the freedom of... Uh, uh, life in Christ and future glorification and a ending with that crescendo at the end that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, meaning we will persevere to the end uh, with final glorification. Uh, but then he comes back. So it seems to me it just fits right in the flow. He brought up all this. He brings up all these wonderful promises, like unbelievable things in Romans 8. And then the question would be, okay, but if, if the promises didn't stand for Israel, how good is that for us? Like, can we can we bank on Romans eight to be true for us if uh, God's word is not true for Israel? And so then, you know, that just goes into what Josh was saying. 
um, it's not as though the word of God has failed. We can we can bank on it. It's yeah. trustworthy and true. And he's going to be airtight again, as always. In is so brilliantly written, isn't it? And that shouldn't be a surprise because it's um, God's the one who who wrote it through Paul. But the way it's written and the way now he comes back to something and he does this throughout the book. He'll give us a little thesis and then he will tie it up so well. And so we have a, a real feast for sure. Uh, in the next uh, month or two as we look at 9 nine to 11. When you look, though, starting and Josh was absolutely right when he says there is a huge change of tone because he says now in verse nine, am I, or chapter 9, verse 1, am I speaking the truth of, I am speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Um, Schreiner breaks this little passage up into three points. Paul's filled with pain and anguish. We see that in one and two. He'd be willing to be cursed for the people of Israel. Unbelievable in three and four. That kind of love. And then five. Israel had God's covenant promises. But um, Josh, when you're thinking about this unceasing anger in his heart, what jumps out of uh, your thoughts there? Yeah, I think before we get to verse 6, the thesis, we kind of see how Paul sets up that question. And these first three verses, you could summarize it as Paul's grief here for his kinsmen who don't know Christ. And uh, there is there is great sorrow. And um, there's stress laid on this just in the way you see Paul communicating. He says, I'm speaking the truth. I am not lying. I think he's setting us up for for what he's about to say that might um, that we need to hear. And then he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. I think Paul felt a deep emotional desire for his kinsmen, for his fellow brothers, for his fellow Jews to come to know Jesus. And uh, just maybe a sidebar here, um, I think it, it, it's important for us, I think easy, it's easy in the Christian life for us to never want any sorrow or, you know, never have to deal with anything that's uncomfortable. And you see, even in Paul, he had sorrow. Underneath that was was deep-rooted joy in Christ. Mm-hmm. But there was a right kind of sorrow. There was an appropriate kind of sorrow for those who didn't know the Lord, for those who were not um, unified to him, and, and he knows what their eternal destiny is going to be. And so I think it, it's important for us to maybe have the right kinds of sorrow, the right kinds of anxieties, not with worldly things, but with with spiritual things. Elsewhere, Paul says he had anxiety for all of the churches that he planted. And um, I think as Christians, we want to maybe grow in having true and lasting, um, or or a true sense of sorrow for those who don't know the Lord and are going to spend eternity apart from him. But um, maybe coming back here to the text, I think Paul knew he'd earned a reputation for maybe being um, a little bit anti-Jewish because he was proclaiming a law-free gospel that was not by works. Mm -hmm. And we know he was very much uh, hated. You'll recall back in Acts 23, there were those 40 zealots that bound themselves by an oath said, we, won't neither, we will neither eat or drink until this man is dead. And so many people hated the Apostle Paul. Many Jewish zealots did not like him. And um, 
we know that in what he's going to say here, what he has said, with unceasing anguish and great sorrow, it's remarkable that he has love for these people. It's remarkable that he cares so deeply about his Jewish brethren. And I just, I think it's a great point of application for us today. Uh, James Boyce asked this question, do we anguish over others who don't know the Savior? Do we have um, great sorrow over those who are who are cut off from Christ. And just thinking about who Paul was and how much he was hated by many Jews, how many synagogues he was run out of for the gospel that he preached, that he still had this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Um, I'm not there. I would like to be there. But, I mean, how, what would you say, Jerry? How can we grow in, mm. in having, you know, not such a hard-heartedness toward those yeah that maybe hate us or that hate Christ? How can we grow in having a right sorrow for others? Yeah, I want to grow in that. I, I, it's, that's such a good question. I think we certainly we need to pray more for for others, pray for our heart that we do hurt um, for others. I know, uh, you know, in our church, Quasi has a great heart for the um, for the lost. I think of Josh Chronic, the, the, those that have, um, kind of the gift of evangelism. There is a they they hurt so badly um, for the lost, and and I think uh, on this passage, I used to think, okay, so why is Paul so tore up about this, and 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 why is that written like that here in in chapter nine, and and I thought of the one reason, or I had read of the one reason that he's so far like Josh explained. It looks like he's kind of against the Jews. And what he's going to write here, there's hard bad news for the Jews. So it looks like, okay, he's kind of defending himself to say, no, no, no. I really love them, and I love them enough that I would be cursed if they could be saved. Which, I can't say that in my own life. Like That's, that's what I've looked forward to for 51 years now, is to be with the Lord Jesus. To think about going to hell for anybody is just beyond my measure of love. but and, and we know that it couldn't happen, right? We'll come to this. It can't happen because Jesus is only substitute. We can't be that substitute. And Paul's not saying that he could. He was saying if he could, right? If he could give his life and his eternity even um, for the Jews. So that's a deep love. But what I found interesting was... Um, and again, it was one of the commentators said, he is, why is he so bothered and passionate? It might be because his love for the Jews is being questioned. But more than that, and I thought this was really good, the honor and faithfulness of God is being questioned here. Right? And that goes back to that's what this passage is about. The honor and the faithfulness of God. So Paul, if God was going to be, question of his faithfulness of his honor was going to be questioned that's why paul felt so such a deep love for the the jews that so far just hadn't um accepted hadn't grasped hold of this despite all the promises they've had because look at three and four there he goes on to say um for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, 
according to the flesh. And so he's saying anathema, where he would be cut off from Christ. And he's talking eternally because a lot of us would say, yeah, I would die for my wife or my kids or for other people because we know we're going to heaven, right? Dying's not as lost as sting. But he's saying way more than that. He's talking about um, being cursed and, 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 you know, only that the Lord Jesus did. That they are Israelites, they are Israelites, and to them belong, and then he goes on to this list of things that uh, that Grant's going to talk to us about. With anything from three more, though, of that being cursed? And Josh, I know I didn't answer your question as to how we can have a, a greater love for the law. I just know I want to. So come back to that, too, if you if you want to. But what do you think about this being Paul's thought about being accursed? I'm not sure <laughs> if Grant was the... I just think it, it shows maybe the depth and the, the length to which he wanted his Jewish brethren to... Come to know the Lord. I think he had tasted of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's just laid out for us. He's tasted of the benefits of being in union with him and wants his brothers to know the Savior and wants them to not spend eternity apart from God's love and experiencing his wrath. Yeah, yeah the only, I don't have much to add for application, but I did find it was interesting. It sort of seems like Paul is echoing back to Moses. Yeah. Um, when Moses said something similar on the mountain after they had done the golden calf and everything and the anger of the Lord had burned against them, Moses had gone down and done all that at the bottom and had gone back up um, after he'd, about 3,000 people had been killed and he had destroyed the golden calf and made them drink it and stuff like that. Uh, but then he came back up um, and says to the Lord, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And then the Lord responds to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Basically, you know, confirming that that's not how it works. Um, there is, Paul knows that there's no, that this isn't literal. He, he can't um, actually do that. It's just if. But I thought that was interesting. I don't know what it quite means, but it is interesting that he seems to go back to that same sort of interaction that, that Moses had with God. Yeah, is that Exodus 32, 32, I think, that, yeah, that, that, that's, that yeah. that's that. And, and uh, yeah, no, and I think it's similar. They, they have that, that similar look. Grant, can you help us with these nine things now? Because the Israelites were so privileged, but please, while you're listening to these, this is what hit me this week, is so have we. We have been so privileged with these with these. Thing in a different way, but for us to be able to sit and feast on God's word, Ashley. I was going to say, like, what I've noticed personally is that when when I pray for God to change my heart, it actually, when I start feeling that way towards people who are lost, it it changes my prayer life because it drives me back to prayer, and then it manifests in different actions. If that makes sense, so it's like. The key is, like, and you can't put that in your heart to start with. Like, that has to be something God puts, because he's putting his love for those that are lost in you. That's like, right. it's not me and my flesh. You know what I mean? Right. So good. Yeah. And I love what you're saying there. It's kind of circular. God gives us a desire for him. We pray for him. It makes more 
Because there, of there's that. nothing you can do yourself. Like right. Once, once, once you realize that you can't save them, like it, you have to go back to him to, to, to move. That's it. Yeah. And what we're going to find is such a joyful part in the rest of Romans 9 that talks about how it's not our job to save them. It is our job in chapter 10, certainly, to evangelize and, um, and, and to bring the great message. So that's really good. I really like that. Yeah, and, and uh, very challenged by that. Grant? Yeah, we have such advantage in the church age. We have God's Word in our language bound all in one place with nice covers and great paper uh, and easy to understand English, and we have Christ. Um, so we have great advantage, so it's probably good to think on that as we read through this so that we don't become maybe haughty uh, with our position. But the Israelites had great advantage, and I think that's what Paul is getting at here, and this is why he sort of crescendos in verse 6, saying that the word of God has not failed. Um, and I'm, I'm taking a lot of this. MacArthur has just a wonderful sermon on this, and he has nine privileges of the Israelite. And I guess I had never really thought about it. Um, just the uniqueness that Israel had back in the ancient world with uh God's choosing of them, his intimacy with them that other nations did not have. I had never really thought about it within the historical context of the neighboring nations around how dark they were compared to how different Israel would have seen with the law. Uh, so this was just fascinating. I encourage you to go listen to that sermon. I can probably post it in the group me, but uh, these are the nine. Some people uh, numbered out as eight, but, but MacArthur did nine, and I think he was right to do it that way. And the first one, so we'll just be going through each one right here. Um, Starting in verse 4, he says, They are Israelites. <clears throat> to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And then also in verse 5, To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. And so we start with their Israelites. So what does it mean to be Israel? Uh, where did that name come from? Why is that unique? Um, that was Jacob's names when it was changed to Israel. That's Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight. He said, quoting, he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So they are uniquely God's people picked out of love from all the peoples of the earth. And we see that name then applied to Israel. An example of this um, would be um, applied not to a singular person but to a Put to the nation an example of this would be Isaiah 48 1 hear this O house of Jacob who are named Israel and who came forth from the loins of Judah so God knew only them we, we sort of got into that with the golden chain of being foreknown we went back through the Old Testament with that um, turn of knowing to know and how God only knew Israel out of all the nations and it was him placing his divine electing love on this unique nation not on the other nations of the world and he knew only them. Uh, they're called a noble vine in the Old Testament. And they were. They were a unique and noble nation at the time. And I guess my thought looking back now is I don't quite see that. But in the time, I think they would be a striking nation in comparison to all those around them. Um, and God picked an individual and through him made a nation that he chose to be his people amongst the people of the earth. And then the second one would be they're privileged to have the adoption as sons. Um, Exodus 4.22 iterates this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And in Hosea 11.1 1 is another example. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt 
I called my son. And MacArthur says they were the recipients of electing grace nationally, not personally yet at this, um, not personally, but nationally as a people. They were uh, recipients of his electing grace. And I think this is also very special because out of that national election, there came much personal election, much personal grace to individuals. Um, but they were nationally blessed by God. And some examples of that, well, what would that blessing look like? They had his protection would be one. And we see that when they were in Egypt and after they left Egypt, when they went through the Red Sea, uh, and then even when they are in the Promised Land with all the nations that wanted to exterminate them, they had God who fought for them and his, his divine protection of them to establish them as a people uh, at great odds against them, which is, is quite amazing. And then he, they also had his provision. with We see that with the manna, um, providing food, um, and even the quail in, in the wilderness, and then water from the rock, and then the bitter water that he turned sweet for them as well. And then this one uh, I think is unique. They, they also had his law, which allowed for their blessing and flourishing of all individuals within a community. And John Murray puts it this way to distinguish it from the New Testament doctrine of adoption. Israel under the Old Covenant were children of God, but they were as children under age to distinguish from the New Testament personal sonship in, the full, in its fullness with union with Christ. Then the third would be they had the glory. Uh, this one is pretty interesting. I had never really thought of it before, but this would be God's revealed presence in the midst of his people. Uh, an example of this would be Exodus 24. Uh, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of the Israel. Um, and so his actual glory, uh, his Shekinah glory, which is his glory in the presence of the people of God, was, uh, was visible, was manifestly visible. Maybe not in its full capacity because we have that example of Moses where God puts him in the cleft of the rock and says, you can't see my face, you can only see my, my backside. Um, but in some special sense, his glory was shining, and we, we see it is in the Holy of Holies. Uh, it appeared at Mount Sinai. It appeared in the tabernacle. It filled the temple in the Holy of Holies. Um, it even such, when Moses came back down, it caused his face to shine so that he had to put a veil over it because of the glory being reflected out. It was the glory that settled on the mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. And we talked about that earlier with propitiation. But the glory of God was with Israel in a unique way. The pillar of, uh, of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, him leading his people with his glory being revealed to them. That was a privilege to have God in their midst. The next, uh, I don't have much on this, maybe y'all can chime in, but the covenants were given to them. The covenants, that he made covenants with Noah with Abraham, with Moses, and I believe with David for the eternal uh, kingship of one to come after David. Uh, we can come back to that one if y'all want, but I want to move on to the giving of the law. This one, this one has always been challenging for me. How is the giving of the law such a privilege? Because um, I think for me the temptation is I want to love the law, like it says in Psalm 119, but I don't really know how to orient myself to the law of God. Um, but I thought about it this weekend, why was it such a privilege that God uh, gave his law? This is the law that was given at Sinai that we just talked about with the glory being revealed. And, and I, I thought of it this way. Um, I want to see it as something lovely. Um, and God's law is summarized in loving God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And it was a written system 
for how this was to be expressed in a variety of situations. So all of that, all of God's laws is summarized, I think, by Christ in loving God with all your heart and then loving your neighbor as yourself. And so in everyday situations of life, what does it look like to actually love your neighbor as yourself? When, you're, when your ox gores a neighbor as an accident happens on your land, what does it look like to do right by your neighbor, motivated out of love? Um, I was just thinking, think of a nation that kept this. If everybody operated in that capacity, what a difference that would have looked like to the neighboring countries or whatever, the nations around Israel at the time who were sacrificing their children, something that we could relate to today. They're sacrificing to Molech, doing all these abysmal practices uh, and barbarism. And we see that today as we're going into more and more lawlessness in our own country with uh, just the barbarism that takes place. But think of a country that, or a nation that loved God with all their heart and they loved their neighbors themselves, and they expressed it by keeping God's law to one another. What a beautiful separation and privilege that would be from surrounding nations and what a, a light that would be to those around them. And I, I heard recently we have much to even benefit today from God's law indir- indirectly. Uh, even non, non-Christians have much to thank for God's law because I heard a public speaker recently say that English common law was a gift from God and our law in, in many ways comes from English common law, which is based on biblical law. A lot of it comes from biblical law with uh, individuals having rights. It's not just what the country says you can and can't do, but you have value and rights as a person. And a lot of that came from from God's law because we're created in his image uh, from conception. Uh, And I think that the law, when kept, gives a true man who is fit to be in community with another, love infused in actions for how we are to do right by our neighbor. And Nehemiah summarizes the law in this way. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. So what a blessing it was that Israel had a law. Uh, And MacArthur, uh, the sixth one here would be they also had the worship or the temple service or ceremonial service. You could put it that way. And this would be the altars, the cleansings, the sacrificial system, the Levites, the priests, the whole thing. And MacArthur summarizes it this way. They were given a system where they could have access to God in an intimate way through all this ceremonial system. And at this point in his sermon, MacArthur says this. To start with, they were a noble people. They enjoyed a special intimacy with God as his son. They were given his glorious presence to to dwell within their midst. And then he gave them covenants, glorious, fulfilling covenants. And then he gave them his law that they might enter into blessing, the blessing of obedience. And then he gave them the services, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the priests, that they might enter into communion with him on an intimate level so that they might come into his presence and fully experience his goodness. Which at the time, what amazing would that be? How different would it be? And no wonder many people came to Israel looking for God to be God-fearers. And then towards the end here, um, he gives the promises. So they were given the promises. A lot of people just say that's a reiteration of the covenants. Uh, I actually think that that's referring more to the promises of a coming Messiah. So it would be uh, all the promises in the Old Testament given to the Christ that's to come, the Messiah to come, and the promise of salvation through that Messiah. And MacArthur gives this example, Acts 13, two situations where we see that. Um, starting in verse 22 of Acts 13, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. 
Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And then picking up in verse 32 of the same chapter, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So we see that promise. uh, They had the promises of a coming Messiah through whom salvation would be found. And then the last two are... The fathers, the patriarchs, and Jesus according to the flesh. And I kind of put these together in my mind that they had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some people include all of the Old Testament patriarchs, but these faithful men who have been in Hebrews 11, the giants of the faith. But I think they're included there because through them, through this line, we have the, um, the coming Messiah, the one that was promised, Jesus according to the flesh. And that's the beginning of the book of Matthew. Uh, that Mark is in right now, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so of the flesh, of this lineage, Jesus came from them. But MacArthur said divinely, he belongs to no one. He belongs to everyone in some way. But uh, of the flesh, meaning from salvation is from the Jews. He came from the lineage of David. And so that's the privilege that the Jews have. And so with all this, it's just this remarkable thing that is built up. And so then we see, well, what happened? Like, why did they crucify him? What, what went wrong? And then I think that's what Paul is getting at here. It's not as though the word of God has failed, and that's where he transitions away. But what a unique privilege Israel had. Yeah, so good, Grant. Thank you. And, uh, and that's what we're getting to next week, what happened, and, uh, and, and why has it gone like that. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful. As we think about all the privileges that you gave Israel and that you've given us, we pray that we would... Uh, not um, be unaware of those, but instead would just be um, overwhelmed uh, with gratitude and with joy and with humility uh, in that you chose to give us um, all that we have for life and godliness through your Son and through your Word. And we commit um, this service to you now. Use Mark in a uh, great way. Um, And Ian, as he leads us in worship, in Jesus' name.